Welcome to Cato Audio for November 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Stephen Calabrese discusses originalism and the Constitution. Former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson talks about migration and H-1B visas. Catholic University President John Garvey talks about the Pope and capitalism. Amir Nasser discusses technology and radical Islam. And Senators Elizabeth Warren and David Vitter discuss financial reform in Congress. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. A proposed rule now working its way through the uh, process of comment and potential final regulation is one that would affect how investors in America get their advice. Uh, it's aimed at dealing with conflicts of interest, but we'll talk about whether or not that's uh, in, on balance a good thing with Thea Knight, Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute, and David Burton, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation just down the road from the Cato Institute. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'll, I'll begin with you, David Burton. You uh, wrote a regulatory comment uh, that I, I looked at before we started recording. What are your essential uh, problems uh, with this regulatory rule? For, well, first, let's, decide, let's discuss what this rule actually would do. Its primary focus is with respect to retirement plans subject to regulation by ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. Uh, so 401ks, IRAs, that sort of thing. And it would require uh, more people to be treated as fiduciaries and in effect look in, in a sense have the same level of care with respect to uh, the advice they're giving as if they were acting themselves or and to always act in the absolute best interest of the investor. Uh, the primary problem with the rule is that, well, there's a whole lot of problems with the rule, but the primary problem with the rule is it's going to raise the cost of providing investment advice to everyone and therefore make providing investment advice to small businesses and individuals uneconomic in many cases. So small businesses and individuals won't be able to get investment advice and, and will no longer have access to those services. Uh, it, it will have a, a lot of other effects as well. Thea? Well, one of the effects is um, it, it has this um, a way of that they think will allow people to continue providing this advice um, that is actually so complicated. It's not necessarily the fiduciary duty standard that is the biggest problem, although that's a problem. One of the problems also is the way it's being implemented will make it almost impossible for some of these brokers to provide the advice that they're providing right now. Okay, so let's start with uh, how smaller investors get their advice on, on what to buy. Where, who, who are they getting this advice from currently? They typically get them from stockbrokers. So these are people who are selling them the financial products. And if you think about a situation when you go in to buy a product um, and it's something that you're not terribly familiar with, so maybe it's a car, maybe it's a computer, you go in and you get some information from the person selling you the product about the product line, the differences between different products, um, sort of the general concept behind the products that you're buying. And you find that advice to be valuable in some ways. Um, this is somebody who works with these products every day, who has some insight that you might not have. 
Um, but you also take it with a grain of salt because you know that the person is selling you something. And I think this is a concept that we all understand almost intuitively, that when somebody is selling you something, they get something out of it. Um, and so in every aspect of our lives, when we go to buy these things, we do research online, we ask our friends, we learn something about the products before we go in to buy them. Um, so, you know, it works similarly when you're talking about buying a lot of investment products. Um, the broker who's selling you the product uh, works on commission, so they get some sort of uh, fee. It, and the fees can be structured all different ways um, depending upon the brokerage and the product that they're selling. Um, and that is how they're compensated for the work that they're doing to process your transaction and also to remain knowledgeable about these different uh issues that you're asking for advice on. David Burton, you, you say that this is a legitimate problem that the rule is attempting to address. I do. I mean, there are certainly cases where, where broker-dealers, insurance producers, and, and others are selling products that are inappropriate for the people they're selling them to. Or there's, there's certainly cases of fraud where they simply lie about what they're selling. Uh, I think there are ways to address that that either already exist and were ignored largely by the Department of Labor and the Council of Economic Advisors, or a simple simple way that has been suggested by the comptroller in New York. Uh, specifically, that the, the, the comptroller has suggested that people selling investments simply have to explain that uh, to the customer that they're not necessarily acting in their best interest and disclose that so that... Uh, and, and there are certainly people out there who are unscrupulous and say things like, this is in your best interest when it's not, or I'm looking out for you when they're not. Uh, but that's really a species of fraud. And, and, and to the extent they're doing that, it, it can be addressed under current laws. But one thing that, that uh, all of the economic studies, with the exception of one, that the Department of Labor and the Council of Economic Advisors relied on, is they ignored that there's a new rule, only three years old, that none of the economic studies took into account, called FINRA Rule 2111, which requires all broker-dealers selling investments, including investments to retirement plans, to make sure that the investments are suitable for the customer buying the investment. And a suitability requirement is not a fiduciary requirement. It's much lesser standard, but it means that you cannot sell a private placement in a startup in Silicon Valley to an 80-year-old widow. It, it imposes some constraints, a reasonableness constraint on the broker. On the other hand, they're not uh, having to delve terribly deep into your personal financial history and your personal financial goals and make an assessment of what's in your interest given your particular circumstances. And then if you're wrong, be subject to a lawsuit. One, one other thing I think we should mention is this is not a simple rule. This is a complex uh, set of rules. I counted, the, I, I believe it's seven specific rules but the page count I came up with is 211 pages of microtype, right? So we're talking about imposing serious costs on these people to comply with, with these rules. And the Department of Labor seems to think they can impose these costs on, on uh, investment firms and there won't be any impact. But the bottom line is you ha if you have to take a regulatory risk, a risk of lawsuit, a risk of noncompliance and, 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 and the DOL jumping you for footfalling on one of these new rules, uh, it imposes costs. Having to learn these costs 
uh, Amini's regulations imposes costs, particularly uh, disproportionate costs on small community banks. And what that means is that they're not going to be able to recover the cost by providing detailed investment advice, digging into your personal financial history, unless you have a lot of money in the bank. And they're not going to be able to cost-effectively comply with these rules and provide you with investment advice uh, if, if you're a small business or if you're an individual with, with uh, you know, less than at least a half a million and maybe a million dollars in investments. So it's really going to mean that lower and moderate income people and small businesses can no longer secure cost-effective investment advice. Now, I've seen a lot of people complain about loads on funds, fees on funds that uh, uh, managers collect. But I've also seen uh, a lot of advertising from various financial firms that are warning consumers constantly about these these precise kinds of fees. So it's not like there isn't a market for that kind of information. I think that's true. And I, I just want to amplify one thing that uh, David said, which is you cannot commit fraud um, under existing law. This is not something where, you know, you can go out and say, uh, you know, I, I and sell somebody something and lie about what you're selling. So just to be totally clear on that. Um, and yeah, I, I think that there is a certain amount of very basic financial information out there. Um, in order to invest wisely for retirement, there's not a lot of information that the average person needs to understand. I think that there are some very basic principles that are easily found on the internet on uh, in a number of books geared toward retail investors and retail investors being, you know, your average everyday middle and lower income people. Um, so the information for people who want it is out there. Um, and I think also that information is not terribly complex to understand. Um, and so I, I think that it's it, it's a little disingenuous to say that people are not capable of understanding, as I said, people get fees for what they're doing and that there are different numbers you can look at to look at uh, whether a, a broker is getting a fee that you think is appropriate. Um, and we do this for all of our other products. I think this is one of the things about this rule that can be very frustrating is that in so many aspects of our lives, we go about and we make these fairly complex decisions about very complex products that we don't always understand. But somehow when we get to money, um, there's this assumption that people can't understand what they're doing. And I think the more we tell people, this is complex, you can't understand it, you need special different protections here, the more you get this sort of learned helplessness on the part of consumers where they think, oh no, that's money, that's scary, I can't do that. Um, I think that that's really a problem for how this uh, conditions people's thinking about money. Well, it's part of a general ethic on the part of our progressive friends that people are too stupid to make decisions for themselves. The bottom line is that there's a whole host of areas where they're trying to restrict the ability of ordinary Americans to, to make their own investment decisions. This is just one. Uh, they also do it in the case of crowdfunding where they limit how much you can put in it. They've done the same thing investing in small companies through Regulation A. At the state level, in over three-fifths of the states, the states decide whether a company is too risky for their citizens to invest in. The most famous example of that is the state of Massachusetts decided that Apple computer was too risky to invest in, so they prohibited people in their state from buying Apple's IPO. Fortunately, today, that wouldn't be the case because state blue sky laws are preempted. But 
there's plenty of examples where there's a steady push to uh, limit people's ability to invest. Another example is the, the liberal groups like the Consumer Federation, the AFL-CIO, ARP, and others are pushing to radically raise the thresholds for investing in private placements, companies that aren't traded on the stock exchange. They want to increase the income limits from $300,000 to as much as three-quarters of a million and the net worth limits from a million to two and a half million. In other words, they want to take away uh, the ability to invest in these high-growth, high-profitability, small uh, private companies from everybody except the 1%. So they're really protecting the 1% and limiting the rest of us from being able to invest in these companies. And the, the 1%, uh, as you say, these are wealthy people who can afford to pay full-time professionals That's right. to provide them with financial advice. Right. And it's literally, they, they, in the case of the Regulation D private placements, they want to prohibit 98 to 99 percent of the American people from being able to invest in these companies. How many investment advisors uh, would be affected? And presumably each of them have tens or hundreds or thousands of clients. It, it's a little bit hard to say. In the case of, of FINRA membership broker-dealers, it's in principle, it could be many hundreds of thousands of registered reps and, and broker-dealers, but I don't know anyway. I'm not sure if anybody does exactly how many of them sell to retirement plans. Uh, certainly, it wasn't in the DOL economic analysis that I saw. But one thing to understand about this rule is, um, I mean, I think that the problem with it is twofold. There's the the imposition of the fiduciary duty standard, which just, you know, that not only is saying um, how the brokers have to act, but it also get, opens them up to a, a number of different um, kinds of litigation. But also how this rule is implementing uh, this standard. One thing that has been, uh, the industry has been very critical of and when you describe it, you can understand why, is that there is this exemption in the rule that would enable, enable them to receive some of these uh, commission-based structures if they engage in this kind of complex contract deal with their clients. So um, under the rule, you would have to make these disclosures in this contract that your client would have to sign in return to you before you could give them really any kind of advice. Um, I mean, under the current rules, if you call up your broker and you say, can you just tell me kind of what the products are that are out there and what their different qualities are? Your broker will say, yeah, sure, let me tell you about these. And that's information that you're getting. And again, this is the sort of broad industry information that we all find somewhat valuable from the people we buy things from. Um, but under this rule, that broker could not engage in that conversation until you sign a contract with that broker. Um, and, you know, some of these bigger brokerage firms, they have hundreds of people answering the phone. So you execute an agreement with your, with, you know, Jim on Monday, and Jim sends out the contract, the paper contract that you literally sign and send back. And so you say, okay, I've sent in my contract, and two days later, you call up, and, well, now you get Mary. Well, you don't have a contract with Mary. You have one with Jim, but Jim isn't in that day. And, you know, it, it's just very impractical, and um, a lot of these companies instead of dealing with all of this, they're just going to stop providing that service. So, you know, even... Unless you have a lot of money. Unless you have a lot of money and can do this on a, a fee-based, you know, a flat fee where it's a percent of, an, of assets under management, which for somebody who has $20,000 in their retirement account, that's not going to be worth their money to do. Whenever a rule is be under consideration for uh, 
a final rulemaking by a federal department, there's always this consideration of what the economic impact of that rule would be. Do we have a sense of what that is? Well, they went through the motions of analyzing it and citing various studies. But as I said, everyone except one predates the application of Federal Rule 2111, which the suitability requirement rule, which dramatically changed uh, how these these products are sold. So in effect, they're utterly and totally irrelevant. Uh, they didn't really come up with a number that said, well, the costs are X and the benefits are Y, and Y is bigger than X. It was just a lot of what you might think of as econo-speak. Well, and the, the study that, uh, that David's referring to that came out from the White House, um, it estimated that the cost of this, what they called conflicted advice, is $17 billion. And pretty much everybody else who's looked at this number has agreed that $17 billion is much too high. That the If you look at that report itself, it kind of assumes all of the worst under the current uh, regime and assumes all of the best under the new rule, as if, you know, with the new rule, nobody would drop out of the market. All of the services would still be available and they would all be providing this, you know, different kind of advice. And those are very extreme assumptions to be making and the number really isn't very well supported. Well, and one thing we have not mentioned is the sizes market generally. The, the number or the amount of money invested in retirement accounts that would be subject to this is approximately $12 trillion. So this, this is going to affect uh, a tremendous amount of uh, people and most of their, their retirement savings. And in terms of small business retirement, roughly half of the small businesses in this country already do not provide uh, retirement plans because the cost of complying with the monstrously complex tax rules are too high. And now we're adding on another layer from the Department of Labor. And you'll probably have even fewer small businesses be able to afford to offer retirement benefits to their employees. These things do have a cost. They do impose uh, serious uh, costs on the American people and, and their ability to save for their retirement in this case. Where is this rule in its process? And if nothing happens, when does it become a, a final rule? Well, the issued proposed rule, they've gotten a great many comments. The last time I looked, it was over 800. Uh, and they can take their time or they can issue the rule. But you can be confident they're going to issue the rule before the end of the administration. Uh, but there's also an effort underway in Congress. Congresswoman uh, Wagner has introduced a bill that would stop the implementation of this. And that's one route. Uh, it's also quite possible that you will see a rider on, uh, on some appropriations bill. And since this year, you're likely to have either a continuing resolution or a, uh, uh, an omnibus appropriations bill. In December, you, you may see this sneak into that must-pass legislation. And this has, uh, these, these legislative initiatives have bipartisan support at this point. There are a great many Democrats who, who uh, share our concerns on, about this uh, proposed rule. So I, I think the odds are reasonably high that you'll see congressional action to, to stop this. All right, we'll leave it there. Thea Knight, Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute, and David Burton, Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. 
You can read more about the Cato Institute's do's and don'ts of financial regulation at our website, cato.org. At the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event held this September, Stephen Calabrese, a professor at Northwestern University School of Law, delivered the annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture on the subject of liberty and originalism in constitutional law. At the time of the American founding and Reconstruction, there were three powerful currents of opinion about liberty that were widely being discussed. Um, first, the framers uh, thought that they were possessing, that they possessed the traditional rights of Englishmen and that they were being abused and cheated out of these rights by King George III. Second, um, the state bills of rights in the 1780s strongly suggest that the framers themselves were very libertarian. And third, the libertarianism that was widespread in the state constitutional law in the 1860s when the 14th Amendment was written and ratified suggests that, that amendment too should be read through a libertarian prism. Prior to 1776, Americans were Englishmen, and they thought they were heirs to a long, centuries-long tradition of liberty that went back to Magna Carta, but also to, before the, years, to the years before the Norman Conquest in 1066. Colonial Americans were followers of the constitutional history of England offered up by Sir Edward Cook during his struggles with the Stuart despots, King James I and King Charles I, both of whom believed in the divine right of kings. Cook and his many followers countered these claims of absolute royal power with a theory that England had an ancient constitution of liberty that dated back to the laws of King Edward the Confessor, the so-called Legis Edwardi. I will first discuss Cook's theory of the ancient constitution of liberty and then explain why it's relevant to American constitutional law. Cook thought that English, England's ancient constitution of liberty had its roots in the forests of Germany, where, the, uh, Roman, where as the Roman historian Tacitus explains, the German tribes governed themselves with a remarkable degree of democracy. The Roman historian Tacitus confirms this account of the democratic libertarianism of the Saxon tribes in Germany. The author Trevor Colburn, for example, has said, quote, Tacitus's Germania enjoyed a remarkable vogue in the 18th century in colonial North America. John Adams read Tacitus frequently. Jefferson would enthusiastically tell any inquiring student to look to Tacitus as the first writer in the world without a single exception. Under the, this ancient constitution theory that Sir Edward Cook really developed, the Saxons brought their democratic and libertarian ways with them when they conquered England, and those rights therefore date back to time immemorial. Uh, many of the, uh, Cook argued that some decisions were made by a group called the Wittenmogat, or by the Witten, or by the Folkmoots, which were uh, seen as predecessors to the House of Lords or the House of Commons. And the thesis essentially was that the last Anglo-Saxon king, Edward the Confessor, supposedly codified all these ancient Anglo-Saxon liberties in the Legis Edwardi. 
Um, this theory of English legal history is uh, criticized by English legal historians as being inaccurate as a matter of English legal history, but it's still very relevant to Americans because it's what Americans believed about English legal history. Americans believed Cook, followed Cook, and took to heart uh, his belief in the ancient Constitution. My second point and closing point on the original libertarianism of the founder framers of the Constitution considers the distinctive way in which those framers wrote their state bills of rights. In May of 1776, George Mason wrote the first draft of the Virginia Declaration of Rights two months before Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. The first article of the draft read as follows, that all men are born equally free and independent and have certain inherent natural rights of which they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, among which are the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. George Mason's first draft was adopted in slightly altered form by the Virginia Constitutional Convention in June of 1776. In the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson rewrote the first clause of George Mason's draft to say, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thus was born the American creed of liberty. Most of the seven of the 14 state constitutions that were in effect in 1791 had uh, born free and equal clauses in the state constitution. For example, the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 began with the following words. Article one, all men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and find that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. In fact, it turns out that 59% uh, of the American population in 1791, when the Bill of Rights was ratified, lived in states that had Lockean natural rights guarantees in their state constitutions. This is a huge supermajority of the population living at that time. So now I want to close by describing how the libertarianism of the American founding, informed by England's ancient constitution of liberty, also informed the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in July 1868. An important window into the rights it protects is provided by looking at state bills of rights. Just as the states define what is the property that the takings clause protects, so too do the state bills of rights define the fundamental liberties that the privileges or immunities clause protects. States cannot give state constitutional rights to white citizens without also giving them to African-American citizens. A state can abolish its public schools by so amending its constitution, but it cannot maintain them in a discriminatory fashion. In July 1868, 
24 out of 37 states had lock-in clauses in their state bills of rights. Lock-in guarantees in state, built state constitutions generally mimicked the language of the lock-in clauses in the original state bills of rights from 1776 on. They all say, in essence, that all human beings are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. What does it mean to say in practice that the Lockean clauses are incorporated into Section 1 of the 14th Amendment? It means that Americans have a constitutional right to enjoy life, to enjoy liberty, to acquire and possess and defend property, and to seek and pursue happiness and safety. The American people remain, according to our state constitutions in the present day, committed to the locking clauses of the framing and of, the, of Reconstruction. I looked at state constitutions in 2010 because I like to do uh, number counts of things in state constitutions and discovered that as of 2010, 31 out of 50 states have lock-in clauses in their state constitutions. So my conclusion is that an original public meaning reading of the Constitution and of its amendments leads inexorably to many, although maybe not all, libertarian outcomes. I think the ancient Constitution that Sir Edward Cook believed had been given to the English people by Edward the Confessor had a uh, tremendous sway over colonial Americans. I think when colonial Americans wrote these Lockean clauses into half of their state constitutions in which 59% of the people lived in 1791, that those were the rights retained by the people of which the Ninth Amendment speaks of. And I think that the fact that 24 out of 37 states in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, had lock-in clauses in their state constitutions means that it's very easy to know what is the right that's deeply rooted in American history and tradition. The right that's deeply rooted in American history and tradition is the recognition that all men and women are born free and equal and have natural and inalienable rights. Immigration is a major partisan sticking point in Washington. At a Cato conference in October on immigration, former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson discussed the importance of expanding H-1B visas, so-called skilled worker visas. So along with Rosario Marin, the first immigrant to serve as treasurer of the United States, if you want to find out who she is, take a look at one of your dollar bills. Go back about five years, and she signed that. She signed that. We are co-chairs of the American Competitiveness Alliance. She's from Los Angeles. Coalition dedicated to advancing immigration policies that support our evolving and modernizing economy. And we at this alliance recognize that the globalized economy is here now. It is time that we as a country address that reality openly and honestly. Look, whether we like it or not, our world is drastically changing. 
Innovations every day happen. New discoveries in the information technology sector are revolutionizing not only our nation's economy, but that of the entire world. The modern IT revolution touches nearly every industry, every business, every job. You hear almost daily of the expanded Internet of Things and the growing cloud computing infrastructure. Sensors in our cars communicating with sensors in cement. They warn of hazardous conditions and adjust driving speeds accordingly. Implants that monitor nutrient or blood content levels can respond by releasing the appropriate amount of a life-saving hormone or medication. Even something as simple as sensors for product inventories on store shelves, automatic signal to warehouses and distributors when a store is running low on a product. I wonder if they can detect whether that product is good or not good. That, that may be a little difficult. So my colleague and dean of the Tuck School of Management, Matthew Slaughter, wrote a white paper report in April of this year. It was entitled this, IT Services Immigration and American Economic Strength. You can read the full white paper on our website, acalliance.org. Matt and his team examined the economic impact of immigration on America's most dynamic industries, finding that the IT revolution we, we are undertaking at present could create economic value worth 10 to 30% of US GDP, 10 to 30%. Literally trillions of dollars in the form of new jobs, new goods and services, and rising incomes. But he warned, as I'm warning now, that we cannot take advantage of this substantial and superior growth with insufficient global talent. We simply cannot remain competitive without access to global talent. America is a country of immigrants. After all, just think of this. Immigrants founded firms such as Google, Intel, eBay, firms that created tens of thousands of jobs in America. Today, almost 80% Listen to this, 80% of the full-time graduate students in electrical engineering in the U.S. are international students. In computer science, foreign nationals make up more than 70% of the full-time graduate students. I think that bears repeating. Four out of five U.S. graduate students in electrical engineering are foreign-born. And nearly three in foreign computer science are foreign nationals. And that's pretty incredible. Our leading businesses are crying out for workers with these advanced technical skills, technical knowledge, and skill sets. And although we're willing to educate foreigners to attain the necessary skills, we are as yet unwilling to do what we must do to keep them here. Instead, we send them back home. Oh, you can't stay. Or to our economic competitors who welcome them with open arms. And I'm referring to the Immigration Nationality Act of 1965, the H-1B Highly Skilled Worker Program, which then is now allowed us to grow the U.S. economy through access, access to global talent, access to specialized skills, access to professionals needed by our leading and developing businesses in order that America maintain a competitive economic advantage. So study after study has found that H-1B visas are a vehicle for job creation and economic growth. AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, found that for every 100 H1B workers, 
an additional 183 jobs are generated for U.S. natives. Unfortunately, that job growth is capped. There's an arbitrary cap of 65,000 H-1B visas per year that was originally set in 1990, outdated, well before anyone could have anticipated the effects of the modernizing economy in creating a boom in jobs requiring advanced technology skills, cloud computing, mobile and social platforms, data analytics. Now, for 2015, over 233 applications were submitted for H-1B visas, but because of the cap, more than 60% were rejected. And let's take a moment to really understand this statistic. If the American Enterprise Institute findings about job creation are correct, this would mean that America, in denying visas for workers with the knowledge and skills our nations need to grow and remain competitive, also denied the creation of more than 270,000 jobs for U.S. citizens. That's pretty appalling realization, to be sure. And to add insult to injury, the latest figures from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show that the U.S. is only meeting half of annual demand for the STEM jobs, those in science, technology, engineering, and math. While many of the highly skilled workers we're educating in U.S. colleges and universities are forced to return to China, India, Canada, Europe, and our other competitors as we fail year after year to expand the H-1B program. Pope Francis has had some harsh words for what are routinely termed the excesses of capitalism. At a Cato event in advance of the Pope's visit to Washington, D.C., John Garvey, president of the Catholic University of America, discussed capitalism through the eyes of the Pope. So let me, let me begin with a little quiz. I want you to uh, answer mentally the following uh, three questions. Who, who said this? First, you're not making a gift of what is yours to the poor man, but you're giving him back what is his. The earth belongs to everyone, not to the rich. This was Pope Paul VI in Pope Alorum Progressio, quoting St. Ambrose. Uh, here's another. Equally worrying is the ecological question. Man consumes the resources of the earth in an excessive and disordered way. He's embarked upon a senseless destruction of the natural environment. This is... St. John Paul II in Centesimus Annus. Last, how can we genuinely teach the importance of concern for other vulnerable beings, however troublesome or inconvenient they may be, if we fail to protect a human embryo, even when its presence is uncomfortable and creates difficulties? This is Pope Francis. Much of what Francis says can seem new, even shocking, because he has a very colorful style, but he's firmly situated in a long tradition of Catholic social teaching and the differences that the media like to draw between him and his predecessors, especially the immediate ones, are, are maybe often storylines that we bring to the material rather than genuine changes in church teaching, as Francis himself said, apropos of his beliefs about and teachings about marriage and contraception and abortion, I'm a son of the church. The first of the two words I want to offer is that we should all, especially Catholics, pay respectful attention to what he's saying. Some conservative Catholics responding to the Pope's comments on the economy and the environment sound like 
Nancy Pelosi responding to church teaching about abortion and marriage. They say that the Pope ought to leave science to scientists and economics to business people and stick to theology. But this has not been the church's understanding of her responsibility. Faith is not a spiritual hobby. It affects every aspect of life, and there's a long tradition of papal catechesis on economics. I've quoted uh, St. John Chrysostom and St. Ambrose, or I might quote again Pope Leo XIII, the founder of the Catholic University of America, who wrote in Rerum Novarum about the institution of private property and the right of laborers to unionize and bargain collectively. So that's the first point. He does have something to say, and it's worth listening to. Second, I do want to add just a note of care or caution, maybe because I'm a lawyer, but I'm attentive to these kinds of things. But uh, Catholics are expected to teach, to, to treat church teaching as authoritative, but authority, this authority, is a complex thing. Not every statement that a pope makes, for example, is to be treated as infallible. The doctrine of papal infallibility is something something like the clear statement rule that courts use in interpreting statutes. The, the, the actual rule is that a pope speaks infallibly only when he, quote, he proclaims by a definitive act some doctrine of faith or morals. The phrase definitive act here means that he must make perfectly clear his intention to speak infallibly, and otherwise it's not that kind of statement. Now, not to say that we can cast aside the rest of them. Below the level of infallible statements, there are many documents with different weights of authority. For example, there was a big uh, rash of news stories last week about a moto proprio announcing changes in the annulment process for failed marriages. Uh, in May, the Pope published Laudato Si as an encyclical, the one on the environment. This carries more weight than what's called an apostolic exhortation like Evangelii Gaudium. And less authoritative still are the homilies that Pope, the Pope gives on scripture readings at Mass, and but beneath that, I mean, be far beneath that, are the chats that he has on airplanes with reporters <laughs> who are here. And Francis makes clear in Evangelii Gaudium that his recommendations are not intended to have infallible force. Here's what he says. Neither the Pope nor the Church has a monopoly on the interpretation of social realities or the proposal of solutions to contemporary problems. It is difficult for us to put forward a solution which has universal validity. This is not our ambition, nor is it our mission. It is up to Christian communities to analyze with objectivity the situation which is proper to their own country. We Americans are the most um, intellectually imperialistic of cultures, and we always imagine that the Pope is speaking to us. Forget it. We are just a small fraction of the, of the church's population around the world, so there are other countries that need to be listened even more attentively than we do to the Pope's teaching. Let me add one last thing about authoritativeness. This is uh, uh, the authoritativeness of papal teachings also varies with the subject matter, and this too is an idea that's a familiar one to lawyers. The, the United States Supreme Court has ultimate authority to interpret the federal constitution, but as every first-year law student knows, uh, Erie Railroad holds that the court has no such authority in matters of state law. So it is with the church, whose jurisdiction is limited to matters of faith and morals. Now, not to say that the environment, the economy, don't have implications for those, but the Pope's teaching, Pope Urban VIII's teaching on astronomy, rightly deserve less respect than Galileo's. And within the domain of faith and morals, there is a spectrum of issues. Again, I don't mean to say that we should cast this aside, but there are, in the first place, things revealed in the in the gospel message, as the canon lawyers say, things that are de fide, like that Jesus is God. 
And there are, these are the primary objects of the church's magisterium. There are things which have been taught, as the canon lawyers say, semper et ubique, that is to say, always and everywhere, like the evil of certain sins, and you know what they are. Um, then there's a range of other things to which the church speaks with um, diminishing degrees of authority, recognition, diction of a church council as ecumenical, the canonization of saints, and so on. So I don't mean to say that we need to discount all of this, only that this is a really complex matter in the ways that many moral and legal questions are, and don't, uh, don't put too much stock in what you hear the Pope said on an airplane. In his new memoir, My Islam, How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind and Doubt Freed My Soul, Amir Nasser makes a case for an assertive liberalism and explains how the power of the internet is a force for good in transforming ideas and identities in Islamic societies. He told a part of his story at the Cato Institute in September. Growing up in a close society like Northern Sudan and Qatar, you have to understand something. These countries until these day are dictatorships. And because they're dictatorships, by virtue of being dictatorships and having a ministry of religious affairs, something you don't have in the United States because it's a secular uh, country, ruled by a secular government, at least most of the time. Because you don't have that here, however, there we do have it. We have a ministry of religious affairs. And because such a ministry is attached to a dictatorship, do you think a ministry like that is going to promote interpretations of Islam that promote free thinking, that promote pluralism, that promote individuality? Of course not. They're going to promote interpretations of Islam that are about conformity, obedience, intolerance, rigidity. And that makes its way all across the education systems and all across state-controlled television. Thankfully, there are other popular forms of Islam that are sort of bottom-up. There are families that can guide their kids to a more moderate path. And lucky for me, even though I was in that environment, when I got online in 2006, I could have been swept into the wrong direction. There were jihadist forums back then. There was very nasty extremist literature on the internet back then. But extremist literature by itself doesn't do anything. As an individual, you have to have pains and wounds and grievances that make you inclined to consuming a certain kind of literature. Thank goodness for me, I had love from my parents. And even though I felt lost in the world, caught between East and West, by the time I was in Malaysia, in a British international school, caught between tradition and modernity, despite those struggles, I had positive influences in my life, and thank goodness, what I discovered first was not the jihadist forms, but instead I discovered the liberal Arab blogosphere in 2006. These guys had been blogging since 2004, and they inspired me to join. In 2006, I began my blog, The Sudanese Thinker, anonymously, with a pseudonym, calling myself Dreama, so that people wouldn't know who I am and not get to say what I want without any repercussions, because I was scared. And despite being scared and fearing the people out there, the governments, believe it or not, I was actually way more scared of the red lines that had been put into my mind by the education system and the religious authorities. 
Even though I was online and I could ask Google anything, dear Google, tell me more about the Prophet Muhammad. Dear Google, tell me more about the Quran or the Bible. No Satan. I could doubt. I could question. But yet, the red lines were put in my mind, and I was scared a lot of the time. Sometimes I would type those inquiries, and my hands would be sweating. That is the lever of mental control that such an education system can, can you know, create in people's minds. Thankfully, though, with the liberal Arab blogosphere, I was exposed to so many blogs that talked about a lot of taboos, things that I was told not to question growing up in school, teachers caning you by religious authorities, right, who worked in concertion with the governments and sometimes outside the governments, but still had a very authoritarian interpretation. And that was my idea of Islam. In 2007, for the first time in my life, I read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. 2007. That's not long ago. I laugh about it right now. I can smile about it up here. But trust me, I mean, I, I was not smiling back then. In fact, after I had read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights for the first time in 2007, I was angry. I was outraged. I was livid. Because for the first time, I understood something profound, that I had rights. And these rights were mine. But they were systematically stolen away from me in the worst kind of thievery. And the worst kind of thievery being the kind of theft that you don't even know happened. See, at least if I knew if something was stolen, I could have done something about it. But I had no idea it was done. And I grew up with that. But the blogosphere changed my mind. The blogosphere gave me confidence to express my voice. It gave me confidence in my own intellect. It made me break down the red lines that were programmed into me and eventually I unshackled the dogmatism, and I got away from it, and I was not the only one. This story is not only mine. I am one of many. And the larger point that I want to make before I conclude is this. The Arab Spring did not pop out of just anywhere, randomly. The blogosphere, the liberal Arab blogosphere existence since 2004, and that built up and built up and built up, and Twitter came into the picture, and Facebook came into the picture, and that finally exploded onto the actual real world. People were getting fed up of having freedom online, but no freedom offline. And the protests mobilized in ways bigger than we had ever imagined, and the digital activists played an instrumental role. The guys whom I was part of, the network that formed since 2004 was a crucial part in that. But then, of course, the Arab Spring failed. Or did it? Politically, it failed. The factors that give birth to it continue. Digital communication is spreading. Smartphones are spreading. Yes, you have nasty literature spreading as well. Yes, you have people who are becoming more dogmatic. And you have groups like ISIS. But the silver lining of groups like ISIS is that it's causing a lot of young Muslims to question religious authorities, to ask hard questions so that they can internalize their own faith and find their own paths to freedom in an indigenous way. And I think with the advent of online education, which is just starting in the Arab world, bottom-up innovation by digital entrepreneurs, many of whom I know, the fact that you have mobile payments on your phone and you have emerging nascent e-commerce, all of these things I think are going to have a very positive contribution. How they will play out, what kind of liberal institutions will emerge, I have no idea. It's a big prediction to make. I do not want to make it. But I think in some countries, we're going to see some good things happening, despite the catastrophes of today. And we have to acknowledge that.
What is too big to fail now that we're seven years from the financial crisis? And when does the Federal Reserve have legitimate authority as a lender of last resort? At a September discussion, Cato's Mark Calabria talked with Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren and Republican Senator David Vitter about the past and future of Fed authority, including the senator's own proposed legislative reform efforts. Uh, I think one of the things that really sort of shook me and shook much of the public during 2008, 2009, were all these things happening that none of us really knew could happen. You know? And every day it was something new. Uh, and I think the public was used to seeing the Fed in this monetary world and said, wow, I didn't know they could do that. Um, and so the reaction, of course, in Dodd-Frank's uh, Section 1101 was to say, let's tighten this up. Let's make sure that this is targeted toward everybody, not one-off. Let's make sure it's solvent, that we aren't bailing out firms. We're just helping those that have a little bump in the road. Um, and of course, about 20 months ago, the Federal Reserve proposed a rule, which in my opinion was largely just re re restating the statute. Uh, and so I'd you know, like to start the conversation with, uh, you know, is this something that the Fed can do on their own? Uh, if let's hope that the Fed was listening now, and if there was something you could say to them in terms of when we see a final rule, you know, what should it look like? David, do you want to start? Sure. Well, first of all, let me back up a little bit and say that I think the fact that we're here together working together on this illustrates how broad and legitimate the concern across America is with Too Big to Fail and the fact that it is unfortunately alive and well. And if another crisis happened, uh, we're convinced we'd see it again all over again, same old, same old. And I think the American public is really concerned about that left, right, and middle. I think it is a very broad-based concern. And the fact that we're sort of the political odd couple, I don't know if I'm Felix or Oscar, but working <laughs> on this, um, I, I think it proves how deep and legitimate and broad-based that concern is. So I just wanted to say that up front. Uh, secondly, could the Fed uh, fix this on its own? Uh, certainly. Uh, have they? Absolutely not. And it's very clear, as you suggested, with everything they have put out, they absolutely want to preserve maximum flexibility, their ability to really do whatever they want, particularly in a crisis. And that, look, I, I'm not going to say that's some um, evidence of uh, some evil hidden agenda. That's sort of the natural impulse for an agency, to, to have as many tools in the toolbox as possible to not restrict themselves uh, maximum flexibility. I just don't think that is good, because if it happens again, I think we would be assured of same old, same old, bailing out insolvent institutions, very focused bailouts, not at all broad-based. And so that's why Elizabeth and I think this legislation which would preclude that is required. So uh, obviously, I agree with David on this. I, I think he's exactly right. This is about too big to fail. Uh, and about what it means to the American people. It's about what it means to this economy. And trying to find a way to back up from that. It was all created in 2008, 2009. We know about TARP. There was a lot of focus on 700 billion, you know, try Googling 700 billion and see how many people were talking about TARP. But what a lot fewer people were talking about was how the Fed was shoveling money out the back door in a very quiet way to support 
not the financial system overall, but to support very targeted financial institutions. Nine trillion dollars, your money, nine trillion tax dollars, went out the door to just three financial institutions. And it stayed there on average for about 22 months that this money went out. And yes, it was loan money, but at an interest rate that I guarantee those three financial institutions couldn't get anywhere in the world except from the Federal Reserve. So what we're talking about, our bill actually has a real history to it in a sense. It has a, it has a kind of pedigree to it. So the first part is too big to fail. The second part is the response in Dodd-Frank. And so in Dodd-Frank, Congress came together, it's before I was there, but Congress came together and they said, look, if the Fed is gonna lend any money in the future in times of distress, we wanna know that it is a system-wide problem, not just that one or two financial institutions has a specific problem, but that it's, it's system-wide, and that the problem the financial institution has is not a problem of insolvency, that is, they have made some terrible bets in the market and they're now upside down, but that the problem they've got is one of liquidity because the market itself is freezing up. And so Congress, I think quite reasonably, and Dodd-Frank said those are in effect the goals and told the Fed to implement that. The Fed, as you rightly say, proposed a rule that I kind of read that rule to say, <laughs> not really, um, because the Fed said, oh, system-wide facility, okay, we probably can't say one. Congress would probably get really aggravated about that. <laughs> so they said two, two counts as system-wide, that's it. So that's all they've got to show is that you've got two financial institutions that are in here asking for money, in effect, at the same time. And the second part of it, as, as they're going through the, the how system-wide is this, then the next question is, is this a financial institution that's insolvent? And I gotta tell you here, the Fed says, oh, we know how to measure insolvent if they haven't yet filed for bankruptcy. <laughs> now, I want you just to think about that for a minute because the way I read that is they said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna set up a little cart right in front of the bankruptcy courthouse and any large financial institution that has prepared the paper and is headed to the courthouse will just intercept and say, would you like a trillion dollars from us instead? Uh, because you will qualify because you have not yet climbed the steps and dropped the piece of paper that files for bankruptcy. Let's face it, that is both not what Congress intended in Dodd-Frank, but it is also not what we need in order to try to beat back the too-big-to-fail problem. So what Senator Vitter and I have proposed is just to go back over those three parts. And we talk about system-wide, and we say, we didn't think we'd have to do this by statute, but come on, guys, five institutions. You know, let's at least get the number up that we think we've got multiple institutions here. Insolvency, you guys got to get out there and certify that this is not an insolvent financial institution that's getting this money. At least you're gonna to have to put your name behind it. And the third part, by the way, is this should be at a penalty rate of interest. So it should be five points above what the T-bill is. The point here is not to give you below market rates so that we can subsidize you 
The point is to say, if you're having to turn to the Fed for help in a crisis, then the Fed in that sense should be like other market lenders. Yeah, they'll be there as lender of last resort, but you're gonna have to pay something extra for it and your shareholders are gonna have to pay something extra for it. So we still give the Fed the capacity to move in, but we feel like we've tried to at least put some curbs on this so that we can get too big to fail under better control. I think that's an incredibly important aspect in reminding people that markets don't work without fair. I was just trying to remember, I think the Warren Buffett deal with Goldman was something like 10%. Yeah. So, so um, let's try to deal with, I mean, you know, neither one of you will be surprised that there's been some criticism. So let's try to raise a couple of what those criticisms have been. Uh, I won't name them, but a recent Federal Reserve official testified before Congress. His initials are BB. <laughs> no, no, no. Is that the one you're talking about? I was about? actually talking oh, about his, going to another one. His, <laughs> another one who, who, oh, okay. who basically kind of, who made the argument that um, you know, we really don't know at the time who's, who's insolvent. You know, we can't figure this out at the time. You know, forcing the Fed to decide at the time who's insolvent, you know, is difficult. And you, you kind of have to just trust our judgment. So I'd like to get a response to that argument. Really? <laughs> well, I'm trying to be generous to the, the but no, but I'm serious. Really? These are supposed to be the supervisors and regulators who are out there looking at the books, assessing the, the assets every single day. That's their job, that they're doing it on a regular basis. And if we're heading into a crisis, it's not like we all get up one morning and with no warning at all, whoa, it's 11.15 and suddenly there's a financial crisis upon us. It, you know that there's trouble. Trouble starts uh, uh, identifying itself. That means they should be stepping up their scrutiny of these institutions. They should be looking more carefully than they do in times when everything looks steady. The idea that they can't tell, if that is a serious statement, I was a then I am genuinely terrified. Um, <laughs> I, I so I'm, I'm gonna assume that not really is the I answer. Well, I agree. I think they clearly have the ability to ascertain that. And I think looking in the past, we can clearly say that most of these cases we're talking about were insolvencies, yeah. and we knew it at the time. And, it, and it's certainly worth remembering, almost any of this will be publicly traded companies that have quarterly right. earnings, and there'll be auditors that are in there. We're not talking a community bank that's only you know, regulated or examined and, every other year. And Mark, if I can jump in, I think the other important thing all of these curbs do is our goal is not simply to limit alternatives in a crisis. Our goal is to do this way ahead of time so that we do other things to head off a crisis. Yeah. Uh, and I think having all of these opportunities and unlimited powers um, really um, uh, is reason for the feds and others not to do things uh, ahead of time to avoid the crisis. Yeah, similarly, to me, I think the, the argument I sometimes I feel like I hear is kind of the stuff happens argument that, you know, well, you're going along, everything's fine, and then boom, some shock out of the blue, and then we've got to bail these guys out like we didn't see it coming. Yeah. And so I certainly worry, and I'd be curious whether you share this concern, by having the expectation of this facility, we change the behavior of the companies themselves and their creditors and their counterparties. Right. Um, and is that a concern that we need it, to absolutely. You see, I think that goes right to the heart of it. And this is what David and I have talked about more than once. And, and that is, if you advertise to the market that the Fed is here and no need for any large financial institution ever to have to go 
to the bankruptcy courthouse or to declare itself insolvent, but instead there will be trillions of dollars available to back up these giant institutions. I think that changes fundamentally the behavior of the big banks themselves, the behavior of those who lend them money, the behavior of those who invest in them, and I gotta say, in all three cases, not for the better, because it encourages riskier behavior knowing that there is an option available. And Mark, if stuff happens, the legitimate question is, okay, does having this facility available all over again encourage or discourage bad stuff to happen? I think it clearly encourages it. And that's exactly what we're, those are the dynamics we're trying to change. There's been study after study after study that says number one, too big to fail is alive and well. Number two, it gives mega banks a market advantage, a lower cost of capital, other market advantages that are simply unfair in the market and um, uh, onerous to competitor institutions. So, so we want to change that dynamic of stuff happening. That's also why I'm working on another piece of legislation with Sherrod Brown to um, put protections like greatly increased capital requirements for mega banks, which I think is a much more systemic approach to, allow, uh, to avoiding these sorts of crises. Yeah, I mean, I think the evidence is pretty clear that, that these have resulted in higher leverage than we would have otherwise. Right. And, you know, it's important to rely on the financial regulators, but, you know, to me it's also important that, I mean, let's say I had a billion dollars to lend you. If I did lend it to you, I'd probably care what you did with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have that expectation. And the, the, I think I remember that Lehman had at least three offers to be bought. Yeah. And every time they were like, no, we, we got this back. We got a better here. deal uh, somewhere else. Mm. And the thing is, you, you've got to think about that in terms of the behavior that encourages from Lehman, from its creditors, up. But it's also what it does to a market overall. So you're a community bank, you're a small bank, you're a mid-sized bank, but you're not going to be too big to fail. You're out there competing for capital, you're competing for investments, and you're competing against somebody that doesn't just have a government guarantee, they've got a government guarantee for free to back them up. And the more you keep that playing field tilted over time, the more we'll see more concentration in the industry. You just, you're driving one set of competitors out of business and advantaging another set of competitors, a set of competitors that ultimately pose far greater risk to the economy. And again, there have been multiple studies that actually quantify that effect in terms of market advantage, lower cost of capital. So to me, the ultimate irony is uh, we come out of the crisis, too big to fail, et cetera. And I think mostly what we've done is greater, created a greater disadvantage to the smaller players who essentially had nothing to do with the crisis. So we've tilted the playing field even further in favor of megabanks against smaller community banks' credit unions. And I, and I agree that this is a lot of this has to be about level in the playing foot. I want to go back and, and again, my reaction when I heard this criticism was really two. So, but, but let's get it out there, yeah. just to, to deal with it. So, one of the arguments is that a penalty rate of five percent will scare away anybody from using this facility. You mean they'll say instead, <laughs> "I'm going bankrupt. I am not going to pay five extra points." Mm -hmm. Please. I mean, it, it, it's just an alternative view of human behavior that I just I don't buy. Uh, they sold to Warren Buffett oh, at 10 points, right? Uh, and are borrowed from, from Buffett. And it, it, the idea that you won't do it here, just 
makes no sense to me. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, what, I mean, part of this should be making the Fed actually a lender of last resort rather than a rescuer of first resort. Right. Um, and that's, I'd love to see the Fed to come up with a similar rule on its own. Uh, but quite frankly, even if they were to do that tomorrow, which they're not going to, you know, my concern would be that they can change that at a moment's notice in the middle of a crisis too. So I think for all sorts of reasons, it's better to have not every little detail, but broad parameters like we're talking about in statute. So, you know, how do we kind of make this, you know, hold the Fed's feet to the fire? I mean, we recently had one court decision that said they lent against equity and they weren't supposed to do that. And Nothing happened at the That's Fed. That's the problem. Right. So, so th that seems to me you got to hold it. Let me you know, ask a different thing. And I guess I should, should say this is a, an, odd, an odd pairing is used that, that's worked because uh, last night a, a bill on GSE compensation that the two of you right. often passed. So, right. the Senate. so congratulations. <laughs> Let's hope that's the, the first of many. Um, I'm curious from the conversations you have with your colleagues what the interest is uh, in the rest of the Senate in this approach. I will note there, there's a House companion, I think Mr. Capuano and Garrett. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what's your sense of the rest of the interest in the Senate in this? What, what's your sense? You've been there longer. Uh, I think, look, I, I think this is sort of a, a competition between two factors. Number one, uh, the public's legitimate concern with too big to fail, uh, favoring megabanks, all of that that broad-based discussion. Number two, the insider game of these institutions, quite frankly, being very powerful and influ influential. And so to me, it's a pretty simple calculus. The question is, how big is the public debate and is it getting big enough to counteract the insider special interest game? Yeah. And to me, that's the, the political fight that's going on. And so far, quite frankly, the public debate hasn't been big enough, loud enough to overcome the special interest game, but I think it's growing in that direction. I, 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 think, I think David's right on this. I always think of it this way, that, that the public interest here, there is no army of lobbyists representing them. There is no army of lawyers uh, coming in every day to talk to every Senate staff to, uh, uh, to make sure that their, their position is well known. And this is, for me, this is just one more version of democracy. The question is, will, will the insiders control the game? Those who've got the lobbyists, those who've got a lot of money on the table, but a very small insular group that, frankly, wants to enhance its profits at the expense of the public? Or will we really be there to represent the people who are affected by this? both in the overall financial system and, God forbid, when we hit the next crisis. If you could make one or two policy or institutional changes to brighten the U.S. economy's long-term growth prospects, what would you change and why? That was the question posed to the 51 contributors in the new ebook, Reviving Economic Growth, edited by Cato scholar Brink Lindsay. This Cato exclusive ebook offers a wide ranging exploration of policy options and encourages fresh thinking about the daunting challenges facing the U.S. economy. Download your copy at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month. <laughs>